I was thinking, I was looking at this young girl and I was thinking, wow, you know, it reminded me of when David, you know, when the Ark of the Covenant came back into the city of Jerusalem and David was dancing and leaping and praising God, you know, and, but his wife, she was like, she was like, oh, why are you praising God like that? And she, she was, she was, she, the Bible says she despised him in her heart. But then the Bible says that the Lord cursed her because of her attitude toward David's worship. But then David was blessed. You know what I'm saying? So, and it reminded me of when Jesus, you know, the children were coming to Jesus and the disciples were like, oh no, we're too serious to do this stuff. And Jesus was like, no, 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 let the children come to me. Let the children come to me. And another time Jesus is going into Jerusalem and while he's going into Jerusalem on a donkey, the children, they're singing, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. And then the, the Pharisees are like, Rabbi, tell the kids to be quiet. And Jesus is like, have you not read that out of the lips of babe you have perfected praise? Now, the interesting thing is Jesus is quoting Psalm chapter 8. And in, in Psalm 8, God says that it is ordained strength. But Jesus interprets it as, as praise. So when we praise God, like that, like that, like that child did, God uses that to pour his strength into us. So I, I praise God for that little girl dancing and doing that because that reminded me, praise God, no matter what. That's one of the reasons I sit in the front. I don't want to be distracted by nobody. I want to praise God the way I want to with giving him glory and not think about anybody and give him the glory he deserves. Okay, so we're going to pray right now. You can all stand and pray. Sorry, I know I gave a, a long intro. All right. So let's pray. Um, Father, we thank you so much for this Sunday, Lord, which we're able to come together and to worship you and to hear your word, Lord. Help me to preach your word faithfully. Remove all the ideas, the thoughts, and the filters from our minds that would keep us from understanding your word and accepting it and receiving it. And help us, Lord, to apply it to our lives, Father. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Really quick, um, the, I, I, I have to condense a lot of information a very short period of time uh, because I know I'm I, I often go on the long side but I want to share a quick testimony and after I share this testimony we're gonna play a video for you and after we play the video for you we're gonna go into the message the video is connected to the message but the testimony I'm gonna share with you doesn't have anything to do with the message per se several years ago at my job I, I was walking by one of the cashiers and she uh, was pregnant and she was pregnant and um, and I walked by her and then uh, I just like hey how are you doing and she began to share with me about how you know she got pregnant and she has she's having this kid but she doesn't want to have the baby she's like you know thinking about having an abortion and she's not even a Christian and I'm like oh my gosh and so I begin to talk to her and I just have a basic conversation with her and I said listen it was less than five minutes, and all I said was, listen, I think you should keep your baby. Don't, I don't think you should do what you're thinking about doing. And that's all I said to her. And she actually ended up keeping that baby. And years later, I saw this little, this little boy with curly hair walking, to, walking into the job with his mom. And I thought about that, and I was like, wow. Did, all it took was me taking the time to have a conversation with somebody. And it saved the life of this little kid. And I want to encourage you. Maybe some of you in the past, you have a checkered past. And maybe you've been affected by this. And you, maybe you've done this. But I want to encourage you. 
you know, it's good for us to protest. It's good for us to make laws. But even better is when we actually take the time to have a conversation with someone and encourage them. Choose life. Give that child a chance. Okay? So I just wanted to share that. Tell someone to encourage you. Even if you've had that in your past, don't be afraid to share your testimony and to tell others to choose life and to keep their child. Okay? So without further ado, we're going to watch this video. And then after that, I will be ministering the word. Born in Long Island, um, raised in Long, uh, Long Island up until I was about eight years old. My family was. Born in Long Island, um, raised in Long, uh, Long Island up until I was about eight years old. My family was pretty, seemed pretty normal on the outside, um, but really in, inside um, there was a lot of issues going on. My father dealt with um, drug addiction. He also was an alcoholic. He was very um, abusive. He was very abusive growing up, when we were growing up. Very violent household, uh, a lot of fear. We ended up running away a lot, living in domestic violence shelters. My mother, my brother, and I, um, we, we live in a shelter, and my father would get better, and we'd come back home. And then he'd relapse again, and then, you know, get too violent, and then we'd run away and come back again. So that was, that's what I remember of my childhood, before before at least 10 years old. My father, due to, to, to drug abuse, um, he contracted HIV, uh, which led to AIDS. He passed away in 1994. My mother took care of him through that, um, even though she, her intention was to leave him one last time, but she took care of him. Um, come to find out a year later, like after he died, maybe about 95, she told us that she also um, contracted um, HIV from him. So not because she was someone who was uh, using drugs, but from him. Um, and so the emotions that went with that were just very, there's a lot of anger. I was very angry at my, my, my dad. Um, but then my mom contracting um, AIDS was really tough on me, and so I dealt with a lot of depression. Um, my mom and her will, she, her last wishes, she said, you know, she wanted for us to live with my aunt. Um, and so my aunt was a, a believer. Um, my brother and I grew up as Joe's witnesses because she had more influence in, in raising us. So she was Joe's witness. Um, her side of the family were Jehovah's witnesses. And so that's what I was raised to believe, and that's what I, you know, was planning to follow, so which is why it was odd that my mother would leave us with a Christian <laughs> to raise us. But she thought at the time it'd be the most stable household because it was a father and a mother. There was a sense of stability, so she thought um, living there. After my mom passed away, my aunt really was intentional about telling us, my brother and I, that you know this is not a faith that is truly following God's word. And she was just pushing and telling us about following Jesus versus following Joe's Witness and the organization and what they produce. And she really was pushing me and looking into the foundation of it, which I was pushing back. I, I There was a part of me that didn't really care if it was true or not. I wanted to just keep my mom. I just wanted to keep a part of my mom. And Joe, the Joe's Witness faith was a part of her. So I, I, I kind of, you know, didn't really want to hear about it. 
But eventually I started to look and I started to search and I started to see contradictions and things like that. I mean, at this point I was a, I was a teenager, a 15 year old who was suppressing a lot of emotions, feelings. I was dealing with depression on some level too. I really felt the Lord pulling me, like just pursuing me. It made me more interested in finding out who this God was that was willing to pull me out of my seat, out of thousands of people here. Who is this God that is tugging on my heart? And so a month later, I ended up accepting the Lord in my aunt's kitchen. About six months later, we had some hardships happen in the, our, in the family. We got evicted. There was a lot of issues going on between my aunt and my uncle, which forced us to have to move. We moved out of the state. So my aunt moved all of us um, out to Colorado Springs. She started to become very emotionally abusive. And, and at this point, I was probably displaying more signs of like depression than I was before. I didn't want to get up. I kind of didn't want to do anything. Um, I actually was struggling with eating. I'd throw up, and I didn't even know why. I couldn't keep food down, it's just, I, and I didn't know why. Um, but she said, you don't deserve to go to school. She took me out of school. Um, she keep me home all day for at least at least a few months. Um, she'd make me write verses over and over again. She'd call them lines. Um, the lines were basically a consequence. Um, she'd make me wash sheets in the tub, in the bathtub, while I, when I should have been in school. Um, and so and she like isolated me from my family, which is in that same household. So it was very, it became very emotionally abusive for months, for months, um, and, and everyone around saw this in our household and, they, and, and no one said anything. My aunt knew eventually I was going to run away and she threatened, she threatened, if you run away, you'll never see your brother again. I eventually ran away um, and, and police got involved and Child Protective Services got involved, um, authorities got involved um, and but I knew I had to leave because it was, a, it, was, it was months and months of this. Child Protective Services gave me three options. They said you can go to a group home, you can live with one of you or one of your two grandmothers. And I chose to move to New York City to live with my grandmother. And so uh, my aunt gave me $20 and sent me on a Greyhound bus across the country. I arrived as a broken teenager dealing with all kinds of issues and depression. I remember praying a prayer. Um, I said that, and it was my first night in my grandmother's apartment, and I, and I was on my knees, and I said, I said, Lord, I need you to heal me. I need you to heal me from depression. And the next day, I was able to hold down food. The next day, I was able to, you know, actually function. <laughs> and I think that was, like, really the first day of where, like, healing started to happen. Yes, it took years and years of healing, um, of dealing with uh, unforgiveness from my aunt. I mean, when I left her, I wished the worst on her. I really did. Um, I hated her. <laughs> I hated her, to say the least. This is a woman who led me to the Lord. This is a woman who told me about the goodness of God and how God loves me and that I need to follow his truth. Up until I was in a, up until my brother actually left her household and ran away. He was, he was a teenager too, I think. She still separated him from me. Um, and so through all of this, I just dealt with this unforgiveness and she didn't deserve my forgiveness and I'm angry, like this anger. I mean, I think I was angry at everyone. I just was a very angry, broken teenager, but the Lord was faithful in putting people in my life to show me, you know, uh, listen, God wants to heal you from this. This is not a burden that you need to carry by yourself. You know, I met my husband, Matthew, <laughs> literally two weeks after or two or three weeks or a month after I got to New York. I think everything was orchestrated and steps were ordered and there were, there were plans in place that, you know, God knew that that was a relationship that one day would lead to our marriage. I wouldn't have known it, 
But I think in looking back, um, God works so many things for good. In Romans 8, 28, you know, we say that, you know that God works all things for those, all things for good for those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. And I feel like even though the enemy meant bad, he meant, he meant bad to happen out of this. He meant, I think the enemy was hoping that in this, I would turn my back on God and say, God, why would you let me go through this? Why would you lead me to someone or help someone lead me to you who's going to hurt me? Who's going to emotionally, you know, just stumble over me? As, 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 But I feel like God was able to say, this is not who I am. And he put people in my life uh, that showed me who Christ really is, despite people hurting me, despite disappointments. And so I really held on to that. Um, and it just kind of helped me in my walk with, with the Lord. So when I was in, I, be, I believe I was in college, it was the end of college, um, and I was visiting my brother who lived in Colorado Springs at the time um, for a week or so. Um, and then my aunt uh, also lived there, and we spent the day together. And she, we were out, we, we stepped outside of the car, and she said, I need to tell you something. She said, uh, sometimes you think you're doing the right thing, and really it's the wrong thing. And she said, I need you, I need, I need to ask for your forgiveness. I need you to forgive me. And she's weeping as she's saying this to me on her knees. And I was able to look down at her and say, I've already forgiven you. It's okay, I've already forgiven you. Because I've dealt, I dealt with the unforgiveness for all those years. And who would have known? I feel like that was also something that the Lord was working in her heart because the Lord orchestrated that moment, that time for her to ask me for forgiveness, but I had already forgiven her. And that was so powerful, I think, for her because I found out a year later, um, she, she passed away from breast cancer. So I think she really wanted to reconcile the relationships that were broken. I definitely think that as, as believers, you need to grow to a point in your walk with the Lord where you're able to separate um, who God is from who people are. And people, regardless of being Christian or not, are going to disappoint you. They're going to hurt you. They're going to hurt you to some extent, whether they're leaders, pastors, they, 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 they have the potential. We all have the potential of hurting someone. The consequences and, and the amount of hurt have, have different levels. But I think you have to know who God is, that God is someone who is loving. God is someone who has your best interests in mind. God is someone who gives you peace. Um, really being able to grasp onto that and hold that has, has, has helped me um, be able to separate who she was, someone who herself was most likely going through her own emotional um, struggles um, and, 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 and ended up becoming someone who was emotionally abusive towards us um, versus who God is. And so that's how I was able to separate that. Okay. Powerful, right? It's crazy. Um, so today's message um, is something that's been on my heart for over a year. Um, it, uh, several different events happened that uh, inspired me to uh, desire to address this topic, and this testimony was is correlated with it. Um, about a year ago, um, there was a Christian musician uh, who I really enjoyed their music. They had a I. I I used to, when I would be at work, I'm working, there's one of the songs I would, like, their, their albums I would play on repeat. Um, and then I found out that this uh, particular musician was, you know, he was living a double life, but not only was he living a double life, he was unrepentant about it. It was kind of like, yeah, I'm doing it. 
and what? And I, I, it hurt me so bad because it was like, here, here's this guy, you're, you have influence in this particular market of music and so many people know who you are and maybe you've encouraged someone or you blessed somebody and you confess that you're living this double life but then it's like you're acting like it's whatever. Then after that, there was another incident that happened where um, a pastor who had a huge impact on me when I was a young Christian. Uh, I got saved in the year 2000, and within the first two or three years, this pastor had a ministry on the radio that really taught me the importance of reading your Bible for yourself, studying your Bible, uh, reading the Bible line upon line, and living your life by God's word. And I was so, you know, this, this guy, I can't tell you how much I learned from him and he encouraged me. But then last year, he was involved in a scandal where he, uh, he had been bullying and very uh, emotionally and verbally abusive toward the people in his church, specifically his staff members. The way he talked to them, the way he interacted with them, in addition to that, he had actually been mismanaging a lot of the financial uh, contributions of the people in his church. Now, he wasn't stealing but he was not properly using it, and he was uh, doing things that were not legal uh, in the way that he managed the funds of that church. And I was really heartbroken because I was like, man, this, this guy, like God used this man to really grow me in my walk with him, to learn the importance of studying your Bible and reading what the Bible teaches you and let the word of God be your compass. And then the last thing that happened within the past year I heard a testimony that ripped my heart out, ripped my heart out, about a, a young girl who her, her father was a pastor of this church, and everyone loved this pastor. They would listen to him, and it, there was an accusation from one of the members against this pastor that he was doing things that were inappropriate uh, toward certain people in the church, particularly children. And um, when... when, when uh, when this accusation came out, the pastor's son, who was an older, older young man, uh, his sister approached him and let him know, you know, what, what this person is accusing our dad of doing, dad did that to me. And so here's this, this young girl who her father was a pastor and he had harmed not just her but several other people. And, and for me, as a Christian, I was like, it ripped my heart out because I was like, man, what do, you, how do, what do you say to someone like that? How can you talk to this person about God is your father and their father had been someone who had hurt them? How can you tell this person about Jesus and this person was someone who had experienced a person of authority who had harmed them in such a way? And so it took me on a journey where I really began to try to wrestle with how does something like that happen? How does somebody who is a believer, who is a Christian, and yet at the same time, they can be someone who can be such a great source of pain for you, and they can cause you so much pain and sorrow? And so what I did was I, I, I looked through the scriptures, and I compiled a list of uh, several different people in the Bible who were great and who were mighty. 
and who God used in extraordinary ways. But yet at the same time, these same people hurt people who were innocent and did harmful things to people who they should have been loving and caring for. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to examine several different people who fit into this category. And we're going to see of the different characteristics that they had so that we can avoid doing those things ourselves. But then the second thing we're going to do is we're going to examine what our attitude should be toward these people. And then thirdly, we're going to examine how can we avoid, avoid, excuse me, avoid being like them and how people like that can find redemption. Okay, so first thing I want you to do is turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 1 verse 25. 2 Samuel chapter 1 verse 25. In 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 25, uh, if you can't find it, I'll just quote it to you. This is what it says. Now, this is King David. King David is writing this song after King Saul died in battle and after King Saul's son, Jonathan, died in battle. And King David writes this song. And one of the, one of the parts of this song, this is what he writes in one of the verses. Verse 25, he says, how the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. And many of us, we've heard that quote before. We've heard people say, oh, how the mighty have fallen. But here in this verse, David is using it to, 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 to express, man, here is King Saul who was a great and a mighty man, but yet he fell in battle. He died in a way that was shameful. So today... Let's start looking at some of these different people in Scripture who were mighty men of God or who God used greatly. And let's look at some of the things that led to them doing these things that were maybe harmful to others who they should have loved and cared for. And let's take it as a cautionary tale. Because in the Bible, you will always find two types of stories. You will find one story that God gives you as an example of this is how you should live your life. But then you'll also find a second type of story which we would call a cautionary tale. God telling you, don't do what this person did. Don't follow in their footsteps. Okay? So hold your finger, well, turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 4. And we're going to look at one of the first people. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4, starting at verse 23. This is what it, what it says. Oh, oops. oops. Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 23. Sorry. 3, verse 23. My bad. Um, this is Moses speaking. Moses, who was a man of God. He was a prophet. And then it says, Then I pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, O Lord God, you have begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do anything like your works and your mighty deeds? Verse 25. I pray, let me cross over and see the good land beyond the Jordan and those pleasant mountains in Lebanon. Verse 26. But the Lord was angry with me on your account and would not listen to me. So the Lord said to me, enough of that. Speak no more to me of this matter. Verse 27, go up to the top of Mount Pisgah, of, of Pisgah and lift your eyes toward the west and the north and the south and the east. 
Behold it with your eyes, for you shall not cross over this Jordan. So really quick recap. Moses, at the age of 80, God calls him to go to Egypt to bring all the Israelites out of slavery. He goes into Egypt. God does a bunch of crazy, amazing miracles through him. He brings Israel out of Egypt. And the reason God brings Israel out of Egypt is because God is going to bring to this, them to this place called the promised land. The promised land was a place, uh, it was a land that was abundant with fruits and vegetables. And it was a very fertile land. And while Moses is bringing Israel to this land, God tells Moses, you're not going to enter the land. And so one of the people who was under Joshua, excuse me, under Moses was a commander named Joshua. So you can imagine Joshua looking at Moses, who's this larger than life leader, this larger than life prophet, not being able to enter this land that God promised to his people. But when we look at Moses, we see one of the first things that the Bible shows us as the reason why some people who are mighty and great do these things that are harmful. And the first thing is called untamed passion. Untamed passion. Now I'm going to go as fast as I can through a couple of verses with you. But if you read Numbers chapter 20, verse 1 through 13, there's this incident that takes place in this chapter. But if you read Exodus chapter 2, when Moses was 40 years old, he saw one of his Egyptian uh, brothers being physically abused, being beaten by, an, by, by, excuse me, he saw an Israelite being abused by an Egyptian. So Moses, he looks this way, he looks that way, and he kills the Egyptian who was beating the Israelite. Okay? At that point, Moses has to become a fugitive, and he runs, he leaves the land of Egypt, and he goes into hiding in the land of Midian as a shepherd. Forty years pass. Now Moses is 80 years old. Moses is 80 years old. God tells Moses, listen, it's time for you to go into Egypt and save the Israelites and bring them out of slavery. He goes into Egypt. He brings them out of slavery. While they're on their way to the promised land, they go to this mountain where God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. God writes with his own finger the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone. The people, while they're waiting for Moses to come down the mountain, they start worshiping an idol. They make an idol and they start worshiping and they start doing a bunch of crazy stuff. Moses comes down the mountain, sees the people worshiping a different God. God just saved them out of slavery. And what does he do? He gets so angry. He takes the tablets of stone and he smashes it. And he's like, you crazy rebels. And he gets, he gets ticked off and, and he rebukes the people. You fast forward a little bit of time later. You come to Numbers chapter 20. Moses is leading the people through the desert. And while he's leading the people through the desert, the people start complaining and they're like, we want water, we want food. And they start complaining against Moses. Moses goes to God and God says, man, these people are complaining again. They need water. So God tells Moses, I want you to go to the rock. There was a rock around the area. And I want you to speak to the rock. And when you speak to the rock, water will come out. And the people, will, will, their, their, their thirst will be satisfied. Okay? Moses goes to the rock. You read it in Numbers 20, verse 1 through 13. The people are there. And he's like, 
listen you rebels you want water he takes his his rod and he strikes the rock two times and then water comes out then god says to him all right time out moses you're out of the game you're not entering the promised land over 120 years this man of god who the bible says was one of the most humble man who ever lived this man of God had moments where he lost control of his anger. And not just in a normal way. I'm talking about in a way where you're breaking the physical tablets that God wrote on. You're striking the rock that God told you to speak to. You murdered a dude out of your anger. And God gave him so much time. 40 years. Another 40 years. Another 40 years. For him to deal with that and surrender it to him. And what we learn from this is that. Moses was an amazing man of God, but his untamed passion and his untamed anger that he did not control caused him to take another man's life and dishonor God before the people. And what is the lesson? The lesson is this. When we have an area of our life, an untamed passion, if we don't learn to control it or surrender it to God, it can lead to our failure or downfall. And that now, what is an untamed passion? An untamed passion is any area of your life where you have no self-control or you tend to lose control. It could be food. It could be gambling. It could be alcohol. It could be entertainment. It could be sex. It could be your words. It could be how you talk to people. God will give us time to deal with that area of untamed passion. But if we don't surrender it to him, eventually we'll find ourselves hurting other people like Moses did. And we'll find God eventually disciplining us publicly. Now, what is the second, the, the second thing? The second thing that we notice about people of influence that God has used to impact us is that sometimes the reason why they fall and they can be harmful to other people is that they have bad company around them. Hold your finger here. Turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 24. 2 Chronicles chapter 24, starting at verse 15. 2 Chronicles 24, starting at verse 15. Okay. So 2 Chronicles 24, starting at verse 15. Okay? Um... Now, just a quick little backstory. At this period of time in, in Israel, in the country of Israel, there was a king and a queen. There, there was a queen named um, Athaliah. Athaliah was the daughter of Jezebel and Ahab. Now, if you know anything about history, Jezebel and Ahab were one of the most wicked kings and queens of Israelite history. They were extremely evil. Athaliah is their daughter. Athaliah has some kids and one of her sons dies and he's he's the heir to the throne but she wants to be the queen so what does she do she kills off all the heirs to the throne but she doesn't realize that one of her daughters actually I, I think it was one of her daughters took one of the boys who was at the it was, was a little boy at the time and hid him in the temple and had a priest named Jehoiada raise him until he was age eight, okay? And at the age of, I, I think, excuse me, age seven or eight, 
He, ra he raised him until that age. And at that age, Jehoiada announces him as the new king. And when he announces him as the new king, Athaliah, she's like, wait a minute, this is treason. The army comes and then they kill Athaliah. They stop the bad woman. They stop the bad queen. Okay? Forget Game of Thrones. This is real life. Okay? So they, 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 they stop the evil queen. And so right after that, Jehoiada, he raises Joash as the new king of Israel, and he teaches him the ways of God. Joash is a good king. He, he rebuilds the temple. He restores proper worship. He serves God. But then we pick it up in verse 15. Look what it says. But Jehoiada grew old and was full of days, and he died. And he was 130 years old when he died. And they buried him in the city of David among the kings, because he had done good in Israel, both toward God and his house. Verse 17. Now, after the death of Jehoiada, the leaders of Judah came and bowed to the king, and the king listened to them. Therefore, they left the house of the Lord, God of their fathers, and served the wooden images and idols. And wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem because of their trespasses. Verse 19. Yet he sent prophets to them to bring them back to the Lord, and they testified against them, but they would not listen. Verse 20. Then the Spirit of God came upon Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest, who stood above the people and said to them, thus says, the, thus, says the, thus says God, Why do you transgress the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he also has forsaken you. Verse 21. So they conspired against him, and at the command of the king, they stoned him with the stones in the court of the, the house of the Lord. Thus Joash the king did not remember the kindness which Jehoiada his father had done to him, but killed his son, and as he died, he said, the Lord look on it and repay. Isn't that crazy? Here's this young boy raised by a priest. This could be an awesome movie. Raised by a priest to be a man of God. Then when the priest dies, this young boy just goes off on a tangent, and he ends up taking the life of the, the son of the man who raised him. Isn't that crazy? But then when you read in verse 17, it shows you why it happened. How was, why did he harm Zechariah? Why did he do these evil things to this innocent man? It starts in verse 17. It says, now after the death of Jehoiada, the leaders, the leaders of Judah came and bowed to him, bowed to the king, and the king listened to them. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 33, bad company corrupts good character, okay? Bad company corrupts good character. Sometimes when there is a person of influence and they allow themselves to be around certain individuals, that can lead to them changing and becoming someone you no longer recognize. Matter of fact, the pastor I told you about earlier who had a big influence on my life, before his fall, I remember a couple years earlier, I saw a video, he went to this conference, him and this other pastor, and they were, they were trying to speak against this other pastor, and basically, well, they weren't speaking against him, they were passing out pamphlets or books to, to detract from what this other pastor was preaching. Now, the pastor who had a big impact on my life, this other pastor that he was doing this with, passing out these, these books with, he was known to have a temper problem, to be a bully, and even his church didn't allow him to 
to, to, to continue as a pastor in that church. And you know what the Bible says in the book of Proverbs? It says, do not associate with an angry person because you will learn their ways. This pastor, I, I wasn't, so, so when I found out this, this pastor who had a great impact on my life was guilty of doing these different things, I wasn't too surprised because I saw he was associating with a man who was known to have a temper problem. A man of God who was known to have a temper problem and had different issues in his heart that he hadn't surrendered to the Lord. He was surrounding himself with a certain company that influenced him. A couple weeks ago, I was talking to my brother on the phone, and um, he mentioned a particular pastor. I'm not going to say the pastor's name, but if I said the name, everyone would know who he is. And I told him something. I said, you know what? This particular pastor, I've noticed some, something about him. Even though he's very influential, he's very powerful, I've noticed every single person who's a pastor or who's a minister, who's ever associated with this person, who I can remember, has eventually been involved in some type of scandal. Some type of public scandal where it was all over the news. And I told him, I w if, if in the future this pastor, one day some scandal p comes out, I wouldn't be surprised. Because here's the thing, the Bible is very clear. Sometimes we need to be very careful who we surround ourselves with. And here's some questions you can ask yourself if you're wondering, am I hanging around some, someone who's maybe a bad influence on me who can lead me in a wrong way? Here's, here's three questions you can ask yourself. Do they cause you to have an inaccurate view of yourself and God? Do they gas you up and puff you up to make you feel like you're greater than you should be? Or... Do they make you feel lesser than you need to be? The second thing, do they regularly, excuse me, do they regularly encourage or tempt or lure you to disobey God's commands? Do they make you feel ashamed to do what is right? Do they regularly try to lure you in a direction you should not go and tempt you to do something that's wrong on a regular basis? That's when you should know, you know what, maybe this person is not someone I should be around. Another thing you could ask yourself is, do they profess to know Christ, but are choosing to live a lifestyle that they know God is not pleased with? Okay? The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 9 through 11, it warns us not to associate with someone who calls themselves a brother or a Christian, but they're living certain type of lifestyles, whether it's an immoral lifestyle or any type of sinful lifestyle. The Bible says if someone calls themselves a Christian, and they are living a lifestyle and they are aware you've 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 confronted them and you told them listen this is not the right way to live you've had other people confront them and talk to them about it and they still go in that direction the bible teaches that at that point you need to put some distance between yourself and that person okay now what is the third thing what is the third thing we notice about people that we sometimes admire look up to who fall away the third thing we notice we were going to find in Galatians chapter 2. Turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. And we're going to start at verse 11. And it's called following the crowd. And we're going to examine a man called Barnabas. Now, following the crowd may seem similar to being around bad company. But it's different because sometimes following the crowd, you can be following a good crowd, but a crowd that is uninformed. So Galatians chapter 2, starting at verse 11. Look what it says. 
Revelations chapter 2, verse 11. All right. Now, when Peter had come to Antioch, I would stood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. Verse 13. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. Now, really quick little history lesson. Barnabas is an apostle. Now, what is an apostle? It takes three things for a person to be an apostle. Jesus himself has to personally pick this person to be his representative to his church. Second thing is, this person has to have seen the physically resurrected Jesus from the dead. Third thing is, an apostle is someone who God gives God gave a supernatural ability to do miracles so that when they preach the gospel, it would be confirmation that they truly were sent from God. So those are three different things. The Bible teaches that Barnabas was an apostle. But Barnabas, he's at this meeting in Jerusalem where there's all these different Christians there. There are, there are Jewish Christians and there are Gentile Christians. A Gentile is a person who is not a Jew by, by birth. So you have these Christian Jews, and then you have these Christian Gentiles, and at first they're all mingling together. And the Bible says Jesus' own disciple Peter is with them, and they're mingling together, and they're having a good time, they're talking. But then all of a sudden, there were a group of men who came from James, who was also an apostle. Now, these group of men were very legalistic, and they were very critical of, of, uh, of, of how Gentiles live their life. So, Peter, he's mingling with, with all these Gentiles, and all of a sudden, these people come in, and all of a sudden, what does Peter do? He separates himself from the Gentiles, and he, the Jews are on one side of the room, the Gentiles on another side of the room. And can, can you imagine how the Gentiles would have felt at that moment? Here's Peter, this larger-than-life apostle, and now he's distancing himself from us because some other people came. Then the Bible says in verse 13 that even Barnabas... Who, who the Bible says was the son of encouragement. He was always an encouraging person. Even he followed Peter's example. And the, you read the rest of the verse, the Bible says that the apostle Paul stood up to Peter and he rebuked him in front of everybody. He said, what you're doing is wrong. You're not living like Jesus lived. But here's the crazy thing. All it took was somebody of influence and power doing something. And what did Barnabas do? He just started copying what he was doing. There was an interesting experiment that happened in 1963. There was a Yale professor who wanted to understand how is it that so many Germans in World War II could kill all these Jews and not even think about, man, should I even be doing this? So he did an experiment. He brought a random person in to... Um, he brought, he brought a random person into, random people into his office, and there was a wall separating them. And he told the people, listen, behind this wall, there is a person. I need you to ask a series of questions through this microphone. If they answer the question wrong, there's this machine that's plugged up to the person. I want you to press this button. So the person would ask a question. Now, the, the person who was pressing the button didn't realize the person behind the wall was actually an actor. But they thought it was a real person. So they would ask a question, the person would get the question wrong, and then the person would press the button. 
And then when the person pressed the button, the person behind the wall, they would scream. They'd be like, ah! And then the person who was pressing the button would ask the person con conducting the test, like, why are they yelling? They're like, oh, each time they get an answer wrong, you're going to zap them. And they told them the amount of the, how, how powerful the zap would be each time. Each time they got it wrong, the zap would be more powerful. It came to the point where 65% of the people, even though they know that some of the, the times that they pressed the button, the zaps would be lethal, they kept pressing the button. Because a person of authority, a person of influence, told them to do it. Isn't that scary? That just because someone who was powerful, just because someone was influential did something, people just followed what they said to do. And as Christians, we need to make sure that we don't simply do something just because a leader or someone of influence does, does it. As the Bible says, we need to test everything. Next thing we're going to notice is the fourth type of reason why some people who are powerful and of influence can sometimes cause pain to those who they love or under them is because of a refusal to repent. Now we're going to look in 1 Samuel chapter 18, starting at verse 6. 1 Samuel chapter 18, starting at verse 6. Actually, you know what? Let's, let's start in 1 Samuel 15. I'm sorry. 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15, starting at verse 10. I'm sorry. Okay. Really quick little background. King Saul, God chose King Saul to be the, king, the first king of Israel. He sends this prophet named Samuel, and God says, listen, I want this man to be the next king of Israel. God chooses Saul to be the next king of Israel, and at first, King Saul is a great king. He's extremely humble, and not only is he extremely humble, he actually protects the country from other people who are trying to hurt it, and he saves a city from a, a country that's trying to destroy it, okay? But there comes a point where King Saul changes and he no longer is the person who we first met earlier in the book of first Samuel and the reason why is because number four he refused to repent there was a refusal to repent and often what we'll notice about people who maybe we love or we admire we look up to who maybe cause harm to us or, or cause us pain is that Sometimes the reason why that is, is because there is a refusal to repent. They are aware of the sin in their life. They are aware of the wrong that they do, but they just make a choice not to repent. And in 1 Samuel chapter 15, starting at verse 10, this is what it says. God told Samuel to basically destroy the Amalekites, which was a people group who had often tried to kill off the whole nation of Israel. And God tells Samuel, tell Saul, I want you to eliminate this the, the Amalekites. So we pick up the story in verse 10. Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel and he cried out to the Lord all night. Verse 12. So when, the Lord, so, so when Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, it was told Samuel saying, Saul went to Carmel and indeed he set up a monument for himself. And he has gone around 
and passed by and gone away to Gilgal. Verse 13. Then Samuel went to Saul and said, Saul, and Saul said, excuse me. Then Samuel went to Saul and Saul said, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Now, God told, God told Saul, I want you to completely annihilate the Amalekites. Saul, he killed most of them, but he left the good sheep, he left the good stuff, and he let the king live. And look what it says in verse, verse 13. Excuse me, verse 14. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears, and the lowing of the, the oxen which I hear? Verse 15. And Saul said, They have bought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. Now this is key. Notice how he talks. He doesn't say the Lord my God, the Lord your God. That's very important. And the rest we have utterly destroyed. <clears throat> Verse 16. Then Samuel said to Saul, Be quiet. Translation, shut up. And I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, Speak on. Verse 17. So Samuel said, When you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Now the Lord sent you on a mission. And said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Verse 19. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? Verse 20. And Saul said to Samuel, but I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. And I brought back Agag, king of the Amalekites, and I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took of the plunder and sheep and oxen and the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. So Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and, sacrifice and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen or heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. But you have rejected the word of the Lord, and he also has rejected you from being king. Now, here is King Saul, this mighty man of God, who at first he was humble. At first, he did great things for God. But then later on, we see not only does he disobey God, later on, he actually becomes a jealous, insecure, and murderous king. And the Bible says that Samuel, who was the prophet who picked Saul, who, who, who anointed him as the new king, he began to cry and he began to weep because this, he loved Saul, but this Saul had turned his back on God. But one of the things you'll notice throughout Saul's entire life is Saul never repented. He admitted what he did was wrong, but here's the thing, admitting what you did was wrong is not repentance. I can admit running the red light is wrong, it's another thing if I don't run the red light. You understand what I'm saying? Saul admitted, okay, yeah, I sinned against the Lord, your God. For him, it wasn't even personal. But then another thing we notice about Saul, which is number five, is that he ignored the prophetic voice of God. Not only did Saul not refuse, excuse me, not only did Saul refuse to repent, Saul refused to listen to the command of God. And because of that, his heart became dark over time. 
Whenever we disobey God and we refuse to repent, the Bible teaches that our heart becomes hardened or stubborn and it becomes difficult to obey God. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 1 that let us give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard lest we drift away. In other words, pay close attention to what God has communicated to you or else you'll drift away. Are you listening to the voice of scripture? Are you listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit? Are you listening to the voice of wisdom from the wise? When we ignore the voice of God over a period of time, our hearts will turn dark and can fall and cause us to harm those who, we, who may admire us and look up to us. Um, uh, when I was in high school, I was involved in a ministry called uh, the Young and United Bible Club. And one of the young men who was a part of the Bible Club, he was actually a leader in the Bible Club. Uh, he had ministered the word several different times. We used to do street witnessing. We would go out on the street and just witness and share the gospel to random people, okay? And I remember one time, this was probably 2006, I want to say, one of my friends, she didn't even know him personally. She never interacted with him personally. She didn't know him personally. She calls me up and she says, you know, I had a dream about your friend. And she said this dream, and, and the dream was a very dark dream. Let me put it like that. And so I call him up and I say, I, I, tell, I tell him, hey, you know, uh, I know you don't know this person. I'm not going to tell you who they are, but this person had this dream about you, and this and this and this and this happened. And at that point, he became very defensive. And he was just like, well, you know, this person doesn't know me, and blah, 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 and A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And I was like, you know what? I don't know if this dream is from God, but pray about it. Maybe God wants to try to communicate something with you. 2011 comes. I get a phone call from a friend, and she's sharing that this particular young man who I had fellowshiped with, we did ministry together, was living a, a very immoral lifestyle. And we prayed for him that night, literally the next day, he was all over the news. He had been arrested. He was on a high-speed chase. He got bitten by the, 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 the dog. He tried to shoot at a police officer. It, it was crazy. And, and what was interesting was I, later on I found out that there was a certain point where he was actually uh, selling drugs. And I thought about that and I was like, wow, years prior, years prior, I shared this dream with him. And he was so defensive. The Bible says when, when God loves someone, when, when you're God's child, he will discipline you because he loves you. And God is trying to save him from this punishment, from this discipline, but he ignores it. He ignored the prophetic voice. And often sometimes we'll feel in our conscience the voice of the Holy Spirit telling us something. And we'll keep pushing it off. We'll keep ignoring it. And it's the Lord trying to warn us. The next thing, there's two last things, is pride. And we're going to look at another king, King Nebuchadnezzar. Turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4, and we're going to start at verse 24. Now, outside of the Bible, if you learn about King Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar was one of the in history, he's known as a, a really mighty and powerful king, okay? Now, in the book of Daniel, it records to us one of the 
one of the uh, events that happened in his life. King Nebuchadnezzar, he was in Babylon and he has this dream. And in this dream, there's this giant tree and all the birds of the world perch inside of this tree. And all of a sudden, a voice in the dream says, cut down the tree. And this giant tree is cut down after seven periods of time. He wakes up. He's, this dream bothers him. So Daniel, who is a prophet, he calls Daniel and he says, tell me what this dream means. And that's where we pick it up in Daniel chapter 4, starting at verse 24. This is what it says. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King. Verse 25. They shall drive you from men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make you eat grass like oxen. They shall wet you with the dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over you, or seven years, till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of, of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. Verse 26, and inasmuch as they gave the command, seven, this is key, listen to this, listen to what Daniel tells King Nebuchadnezzar, therefore, O king, let my advice be acceptable to you, break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor, perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. Now, Daniel tells him the interpretation of the dream, he's basically... Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar, listen, God is going to cut, off, cut you off from your kingdom. You're not going to be king anymore for seven years if you don't humble yourself, if you don't repent and turn from your sins. Stop hurting the poor. Stop oppressing the poor. Pick it up in verse 28. Look what it says. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of the 12 months, he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. A whole year passes. He does not repent. And what does the Bible says happen? All of a sudden, he's on his palace and he's like, isn't this my kingdom? Ain't I the greatest? And all of a sudden, a voice comes out of heaven and he says, you're going to be driven out before men and you're going to lose your mind. And for seven years, he becomes like, uh, what was the name of that... Uh, that media mogul who lost his mind, who he was like really rich, Howard something, Howard, Howard Hughes, I think. I, I forgot what his name was, but he lost, he loses his mind for seven years. He loses his mind for seven years. He's eating grass like a cow. He's, his nails are like claws, looking like Wolverine. And he's lost all his sanity. And then at the end of seven years, finally, he, God restores his mind. And he repents and he's like, God, forgive me. And God restores his kingdom. And here's the thing. When you look at this story, look what it says in verse 34. And at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the most high and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom is from generation to generation. Drop down to verse 37. And this is the part that I want us to cling to. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice. And look at this last sentence. This is powerful. And those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. Those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. God, it took God eight years to take the pride out of this king's heart. 
eight years, one whole year, he doesn't even repent. Seven years, he's lost his mind. And finally, he repents. And what does this man say? God is able to humble you. And here's this man. He was a powerful king. But the Bible says in verse 27, in verse 26 and 27, that he was actually oppressing people. And what does God do? He humbles him because of that pride. But it took God eight years. And often people who have been a source of pain and hurt from, from, for us have also been people who are very prideful. You try to confront them with the truth and they don't listen. What are some characteristics of pride? You refuse to listen to correction or instruction. You refuse to seek God or acknowledge him in your life. The Bible says in Psalm 9 verse 10, the wicked and his proud continents will not seek God. So whenever you do not seek God in your choices and in your life and your decision, at the root of that is pride. What is another characteristic of, of pride? You are someone who's very combative or argumentative. The Bible says in Proverbs 13 verse 10, only by pride comes contention. Only by pride comes a fight. You're always argumentative. You're always combative. That At the root of that is pride. What is another correct characteristic, uh, characteristic of pride? Obadiah 1 verse 3 says, another characteristic of pride is that you are self-deceived. You overestimate your abilities or you, or you underestimate certain things about yourself. You know, it's interesting. Most people, they say, who drown in the ocean, they... They usually drown because they overestimate their ability to swim and they underestimate the power of the ocean. That's how pride is. You overestimate your strength. Oh, I'm all this and I'm all that. I'm all that and a bag of chips and a milkshake. <laughs> What's another characteristic of pride? You try to promote, you try to promote yourself or elevate yourself above others by pointing out the weakness in other people. You may not do it on the outside, but you can do it on the inside. Well, he doesn't have my car. Look at those shoes. Look at their career. And you elevate yourself by putting down others. That's a characteristic of pride. You judge others by what they do, but you judge yourself by your intentions. Well, I can't believe you did that wrong thing. But when I did it, I, I, I meant well. That, that's pride. Last one, number seven. Next thing we see in people who are mighty, who are powerful, who had a great impact on us, but also who have been a source of pain and hurt for us, is that there is a lack of surrender. There's a lack of total surrender. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10, verse 1 through 4. Matthew chapter 10, verse 1 through 4. Starting at verse 1, this is what it says. And when he had called his 12 disciples, meaning Jesus, to him, he gave them power over un excuse me. He gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of diseases. So Jesus calls all his 12 disciples and he gives them the ability to cast out demons and to heal every type of sickness. Look what it says in verse 3 and 4. Excuse me, verse 2 through 4. Now the names of the 12 apostles are these. 
first Simon, who was called Peter, Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus, and, La and Labius, whose name was Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Now here's the interesting thing. According to verse 1, Jesus gave every single one of his disciples the ability to cast out demons and to heal people who are sick. That includes Judas. Judas, who is Jesus' disciple. Judas, who Jesus said is my friend. Jesus called him friend when Judas kissed him to betray him. This same Judas who healed people, who cast out demons, when Jesus sent the disciples two by two to preach the gospel, he was there. He was preaching. This same Judas, we know, hurt his best friend, Jesus, betrayed him. He put all the disciples' lives in danger when they were in the Garden of Gethsemane because they were going to arrest the disciples too. How did that happen? The answer we find in John chapter 12. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 12. Starting at verse 1. If you can't find it, I'll just read it out loud for you. This is what it says. Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, and where Lazarus was who, was, who had been raised, who had raised from the dead. Verse 2. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. When one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And he said, he, look what it says in verse 6. This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. When Jesus was in ministry, sometimes people would donate money to, to his ministry because sometimes they needed money to buy food, they needed to travel, and all those different things. Judas was responsible. For, he was the treasurer. And the Bible says he would regularly take money out for himself. Now, here's the interesting thing. Every single disciple Jesus called, when he called them, you know what he told them to do? Leave everything and follow me. Peter, leave your fishing business. John, leave your job. Matthew, leave your tax collector job. Leave everything behind and follow me to do ministry. Judas, however, we see that there was an area of his life where he's like, you know what? I need to be financially secure. I need money. So he starts taking money for himself. And here's the thing. Often we'll find that people who, are, who have been great influencers in our life or God has used in a mighty way but at the same time have been a source of pain one of the other things we'll notice about them is that sometimes they have an area of their life that they have not surrendered to the Lord. I remember several years ago, I heard a story. I never for, I'll, I'll never forget it. Uh, it's a fictional story, so take it with a grain of salt. Uh, there was this guy, he had prayed and he, had, he said, Jesus, I want you in my life. So one day he gets a knock at the door. He opens the door and it's Jesus. It's like, Jesus, what are you doing here? And he was like, hey, you said you wanted me in, to, to, in your life. You wanted me to come live with you. And he's like, that's awesome. So he, he goes and he gives Jesus the best room in the entire 
entire house. He's like, this is my Xbox. This is my painting. This is my thing. He's like, Jesus, man, this is so awesome. You're staying in my house. I love you so much. Praise God. This is awesome. That night, he goes to sleep. Jesus goes to sleep in his room. He goes to sleep in another room. He hears a knock at the door. Goes downstairs, opens the door. What does he see? He sees three demons try to break into his house. He's like, oh, snap. All of a sudden, the guy starts acting like Jackie Chan. He fights off the demons, and the demons leave. Shuts the door, and he's like, whoo, what in the world? How is Jesus staying in my house, and the demons try to break in? He's like, man, I should tell Jesus. He's like, nah, I ain't going to tell Jesus. Second night, same thing happens. This time, though, there's seven demons. Does the same thing. Goes John claude Van Damme, Chuck Norris, fights off all the demons. They get out of the house. And then he shuts the door and he's like, oh my goodness, how is this happening? Jesus, the son of God is living in my house and I have demons trying to break into my house. I don't get it. He's like, nah, but I ain't going to tell Jesus. Him and Jesus having breakfast. Jesus is like, how was your night? He's like, oh, it was great. Just keeps eating, doesn't tell Jesus nothing. Third night, same thing happens. This time there's not three demons. They're not seven demons. There are 15 demons trying to break into the house. Oh, he just goes full throttle action movie just starts fighting all these demons and th but this time they beat the snot out of him but some way somehow he defeats all the demons this time he's like bloody and bruised he's like i cannot take it he's like i need to talk to jesus he goes upstairs and i'm like jesus wake up wake up jesus opens the door blurry eyed like yo what's going on he's like jesus listen we got a problem for the past three nights i've had demons constantly try to break into my house how is it that you're the son of God, you're living in my house, but these demons keep trying to break into my house? And Jesus asked him a question. He said, did they try to break into my room? He's like, no, they didn't. He's like, that's the issue. You didn't give me the whole house. And here's the thing. If we don't surrender our entire life to God, the very area you don't surrender is the very area that will lead to your fall and that will cause you to harm other people. So, in conclusion, what should our attitude be toward those people who maybe we've loved and we've admired, who've fallen and who've bought pain in our life? Number one, we need to grieve. Do you notice in the book of Samuel, the Bible says that when King Saul turned away from God, that Samuel cried, he wept. Sometimes you do need to cry. You do need to say, God, I don't understand, and you need to mourn. But then the second thing we, do, we need to do is we need to recognize the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 12, if you think you stand firm, you had better be careful that you do not fall. In other words, if you think, well, you know what? I will never do what they did. Be careful because it can happen to you. See, the Bible says pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Recognize that even though they did these things that were wrong, that we could easily be them. Me and my wife used to watch the show several years ago it was a sci-fi show uh, about this billionaire who built this special machine that had the it was an AI machine that had the ability to predict when a, a crime that was going to happen a violent crime and the machine would spit out a social security number and whoever's the social security number it was they would either be the victim of a crime or they would be the perpetrator and the whole entire show the, there was a guy, he was like an ex-special forces. He would follow the person around to determine whether or not they were the victim or the perpetrator. Sometimes it turns out the person was the victim and the perpetrator. And here's the thing. Sometimes 
we, 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 we look at people who have fallen and we think like, man, I can't believe this person did this to me. But we forget the fact that we ourselves could also be guilty of doing that. A couple years back, there was a woman and her family who came to this church. It was her first time coming to this church. Her son was with my son in the, in the playroom. And my wife came to me after and said, hey, th- this, this little kid, I mean, well, she didn't say this little kid. She's like, this, this kid kicked uh, Jeremiah. I'm like, what? So I, I go and then we, can, we talk to the parents and, and I'm talking to the kid. And, and the way I am, I am very, I'm like beast mode. I'm like, you know, why, why did you do that? And da, 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 da. And I could see on the lady's face and her, her husband's face that their, their, their face changed. And later on, I felt so convicted because I found out that the young boy actually had certain uh, issues with himself. And that's one of the reasons why he did that. I came to that lady next, next Sunday and I was like, listen, I pulled her to the side. I was like, listen, I'm wrong. Please forgive me. What I did was wrong. And she's like, it's okay. I'm like, no, it's not okay. I was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. And sometimes I've been the one victimized and other times I've been the perpetrator. And you could say the same for each and every one of us here. Sometimes we've been hurt and sometimes we've been the one hurting. And the last thing we could, we, we could learn from this is that we need to carry a spirit of forgiveness. Jesus said, if you don't forgive those who have sinned against you, my heavenly Father will not forgive you when you sin against me. Okay? So, to sum it all up, how do we avoid being like those people? Number one, we need to genuinely repent. Number two, we need to humble ourselves. Number three, we need to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit. Number four, we need to let God in every, every area of our, our heart and our life. Number five, we need to rely on the Holy Spirit to give us power over our passions. Number six, we need to avoid following the crowd. And number seven, we need to avoid bad company. Let's all stand. You know, out of all the people that I've hurt in my life, I think the person who I've hurt the most has been Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches that all of us are guilty of sinning against God, that all of us have broken God's law, all of us have lied, all of us have stealed, all of us have done something that has violated his commandments. And the Bible teaches that all of us are guilty before God because of our sin. But the Bible also teaches that If we repent and place our faith in Jesus Christ, God will forgive us and grant us everlasting life and accept us into his family. Jesus suffered and died on that cross. He was bleeding and dying because of my sin, because of your sin, the sins that we are all guilty of, because we victimized him. But the Bible teaches that if we repent and we trust in Christ, God will forgive us and he will grant us everlasting life. There is no other way to be forgiven but through Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this word. Thank you for enabling me to speak it, Lord. I know it went a little long, but thank you for giving me the grace to do it. I pray that people are blessed by it, and I pray that uh, if anyone needs to repent or turn to you, Lord, that you grant them that forgiveness, Lord. In Jesus' name, 